Four years ago, Barack Obama was elected President of the United States, the first African-American to hold that office. And two phrases, you might remember, drove that campaign. Yes, we can, and the audacity of hope. And among other things, these two phrases spoke to the paradigm-shifting prospect of electing a black man to the highest office in that country. From our perspective north of the border, we knew it was a historic moment, though I'm not sure that many of us realize just how historic, just how paradigm-shifting and hope-filled it was. To give some perspective, in his 1963 inauguration address, George Wallace, the newly elected governor of the state of Alabama, said the following. Remember, 1963. He said, In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and I toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That's the governor of the state. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Governor Wallace was anything but shy about walking his talk, and six months after his inauguration, he stood in front of the doors of a University of Alabama auditorium, and he attempted to physically block the entry of that school's first two black students. And just in case you're thinking that Governor Wallace must have been nothing more than a fringe character, three times he took a serious run at being the Democrat candidate for president. And in 1968, George Wallace even ran as the presidential candidate for something called the American Independent Party. And he garnered over 13% of the popular vote. Less than 50 years after an influential politician could publicly say something so jarring as segregation now, tomorrow, and forever, Obama is elected president. You see how audacious was that hope? And in all the fanfare that followed that election, it seemed as if many believed a whole new day had dawned. The enthusiasm was almost messianic, except that Obama had around him a few black preachers prepared to ground things in a bit of gospel reality. Thankfully so. Who could possibly live up to the expectations that sat on his shoulders in those days? It wasn't long before the new president came under fierce criticism, not only from his political opponents, but also from many who had dared to hope that he was going to change, fix, and transform everything. Never mind those more reactionary views, those who tried to suggest that he was a closeted Muslim, Obama, Osama, and all that sort of nonsense. 
The reality is that the president, whose inauguration was surrounded by an almost messianic fervor in 2008, may well find himself defeated in 2012. Now, I want to be clear that I believe that Christian hope is indeed audacious. When asked what Christians should be doing locally to live out the gospel, the theologian Jürgen Moltmann answered simply, revitalize the audacity of hope. And yet, Christian hope has about it a kind of eyes-wide-open realism. For Christian hope is cross-shaped. Hope without that kind of grounding so easily gets enmeshed in our aspirations, be they individual or political. We have decided what we think is going on, and so we will invest our energies, our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations in this thing, whatever this thing is. And when this thing doesn't deliver in the way in which we thought it would, that can become very dangerous, get toxic. How is it, do you suppose, that as Jesus makes his entry into the city of Jerusalem, he's greeted with this incredible fanfare? And then just a week or so later, Many of those who had greeted him with such enthusiasm were calling for his death. How is it that his closest friends and followers could wave those branches and sing their hosannas and then desert him on the night of his arrest? Well, the song that they sing is actually part of the clue. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna in Hebrew literally means please save or save now. And this is what they think is really going on. When they sing their hosannas, it's save us here, now, it's on. And so the line, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David really indicates the degree to which they hoped, dreamed, believed that a new political reality was about to commence, a new political reality. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. He's the promised heir to the throne. The empire as represented by Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and that puppet king Herod was about to be overturned. Hosanna! That's the fervor of that entrance into Jerusalem. That's the, its revolutionary excitement. And you know that the disciples were committed to that agenda. In spite of the number of times, Jesus pushes it back, pushes them away from it. Recall, for instance, when James and John come to Jesus with, the, with their request... Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They're looking for positions of prominence, positions of authority in his kingdom. And they're not thinking heavenly kingdom. They're thinking political kingdom. And this is right after he'd just spoken to them 
about his approaching death. They don't have a clue. The days Jesus spends in Jerusalem start out with what looks like a bit of revolutionary flair. As he heads into the temple and he chases out the merchants and the money changers, that's kind of a, an act of a liberator. But from there, he doesn't do anything other than offer his teaching and debate, debate the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He actually stirs up the hostility of those people, which would seem a tactically problematic move for someone about to launch a revolution. He doesn't muster an army. He doesn't organize a campaign. He doesn't in any way look or act like an heir to the militarily and politically brilliant ancestor of his, King David. Just doesn't take that much to turn people against him. If you're not what we hoped for, if you're not the David, if you're not going to save us in the way we want to be saved, because their hopes had no real foundation, and so they soured easily. We must have looked pretty stupid out there on the road, singing our hosannas and waving our palm branches for him. Crucify him. The disciples do hold fast for a while. But again, they're still imagining that they're part of a liberation movement. Mark tells us that at the moment of Jesus' arrest, one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And you have to ask what a disciple, John tells us it was Peter, the others just say one of the disciples, you have to ask what a disciple, probably a fisherman, was doing carrying a sword. And after that one rash attempt at swordplay, all of the disciples desert and flee. They just can't sustain hope when faced by armed guards. And then there's Judas. In so many ways, the most troubling figure of all. Three years on the road with Jesus, and in the end, he'll sell him for a handful of silver. Simple greed? Maybe. John says that Satan enters Judas, but I'd want to suggest that by that point, Judas isn't acting like a man possessed, but rather as one who's already slid into a place of being willing to betray his teacher for the sake of his own gain. If there is something satanic at work in Judas, he's in full collusion with it. But why? Maybe because he'd invested himself so deeply in what he believed Jesus was doing. And when it became clear that this was not going to be that kind of movement, not something that a proper son of David would launch, Judas simply cut his losses and looked for a way to get at least some compensation for what he now considered to have been three wasted years of his life. We all have the capacity to do 
terrible things to each other when our hopes and dreams turn out to have been wrong. On that night of his arrest, while sharing the Passover meal with his followers, Jesus did an extraordinary thing. He took the ritual meal, a meal, the Passover meal, built around a story rich in symbolism, and he re-narrated it for them. He, he re-symbolized it. He took the Passover bread. He spoke of it as being his body. He lifted the Passover cup, and he called it his blood. Apparently, they participated in it all. It was remembered. It was repeated. We'll repeat it tonight. But they didn't have the faintest idea as to what Jesus was talking about. It's only on the other side of the cross that they began to understand how it is that he could be made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And that so much of what he'd been trying to teach them about his kingship, his reign, his work, was packed into the sharing of that meal. It's only when their hope became cross-shaped that they could let go of their old ways of imagining and really begin anew. It's by way of the cross that the most unlikely of things can be brought to new life, in fact. Though he is still remembered primarily as a racist and a segregationist, George Wallace did renounce his segregationist views. And in the last 20 years of his life, Wallace spoke any number of times in black churches and at black meetings. As an article in the Washington Post phrased it, he sought almost poignantly to bury his past with Christian atonement, saying he didn't want to meet his maker his sins unforgiven. But that kind of reimagining can only happen on the other side of the cross, when hope becomes cross-shaped. And the only way to get to the other side is by going to the cross, into death, and toward a much deeper hope. That's the path that we will walk this week. Amen.